So I know this is the uh, first Sunday of the new year, and even though uh, in God's economy and in our relationship with him, one day is no more important than another, but uh, I thought I'd maybe try something a little bit different as we prepare to read the word this morning. So if you could bear with me on just three questions, two of which come from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, and maybe be ready to respond with an amen or two. Um, If you believe that God's word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, say amen. Amen. Okay, that was an easy one. Uh, This next one, a little bit tougher, although, although there's a little bit of a hint from that whole sword thing. If you are ready for God's word to pierce you deeply and expose the condition of your heart, maybe even a sin that you didn't mention a few moments ago, say amen. If you know you're ready to hear God's word because you know that he is faithful, his love endures forever, his love, as we just sang, is an amazing love, and uh, he is worthy of our trust and obedience, say a deeply heartfelt amen. amen. All right, let's pray. Oh, we're going to read from Psalm 12, by the way. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, I just pray that uh, those, those amens we just... Uh, said really were from our hearts, even though we know that sometimes your word is disturbing, sometimes it's convicting, but we know it's your word, and we're so thankful for it. And I just pray that we would be ready to read it now and hear it preached. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm chapter 12. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor, with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. This is the word of the Lord. Each week I ask you to submit prayer requests and drop them in the uh, 
offering plate, so I'm going to throw a, a couple out to you before we get into the sermon today. Just a couple things for uh, you to be praying for in the life of our church that, that are coming up. Uh, next week, uh, Jake and Isaac, AC and I, where are you at, Isaac? Everybody say hi to Isaac over here. Um, Jake and uh, Isaac and I are going to be going to a church leaders conference in Minneapolis. So this is a great time of year to go to Minneapolis. Those of you that have been there, I looked on my app the other day just out of curiosity. The high was like three degrees and the low was like negative 12. So uh, my prayer request doesn't involve the weather, but we will be going there with um, several thousand other uh, church leaders from all different denominations, from Presbyterian, Baptist, Stevie Free, all kinds of independent churches, and we'll be coming together and it's just a beautiful time. I've gone many, many years, and it's worth going just to sing with these guys and to worship the Lord in this huge convention center. Uh, so pray that God would restore us, that he would speak to me and to us, and just give us a sweet time of, of fellowship, of encouragement, of edification, of teaching of the word, and of worship. So that's one thing. Just pray for that, however the Lord leads you, and then also pray for our short-term mission trip that's coming up that I'm not going to be going on, but many of you will. Raise your hand if you're here and you're going on that trip. Just one of you, a few of you are here. So pray for these folks as they're going to be going to Houston during spring break, the Houston area, to display the gospel and help with the recovery there after Hurricane Harvey. So those are just two things um, for me to send back your way uh, to be praying for in the coming days and coming weeks. Well, aside from the scriptures, aside from the Bible, this is the one book in my life that I have picked up more often than any other. It's a little prayer book, is what I call it. Its title is The Valley of Vision, and it's a collection of prayers that someone has put together from a variety of of people, a variety of people that are known as, as Puritans, if that means anything to you, people like Charles Spurgeon, Thomas Watson, Richard Baxter, Isaac Watts, and others. And other than the Bible, this is the book I have picked up more often in life. And the reason for that is I'm not terribly creative. I'm not terribly poetic. And at times I just struggle with even knowing how to pray and what to pray. And so the prayers of these guys have helped me to pray, to learn how to pray. They've given words and expressions that are actually in my heart, but I didn't quite have the, the whatever, the wherewithal the, 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 to, to, to speak them, to write them out. And so I have several that are, have become favorites uh, over the years. And although I recommend this to you heartily, I'm, I'm actually bringing it up this morning to speak of one of its small weaknesses. And that is, occasionally, there will be a sentence or there'll be a phrase, and I, and I go, I'm not sure that's Biblical. I'm not sure that's right. I'm not sure that I should pray that prayer. So that's one of the, the weaknesses of, of utilizing a tool uh, like this. I'm going to continue to utilize it, but the reason I am bringing it up is to contrast it with another tool that God has given to us to learn how to pray. He has given us the Word of God. And unlike every other book in the world... We don't have to be discerning to whether this is truthful or not. Whether the prayers that are in here that are given to us to pray, whether they are right or true 
or from God because they are all right, they are all true, they are all from God, and there are many, many prayers in here teaching us how to pray. Chief among them, of course, teaching us both how to pray and what to pray. Chief among them, of course, being the Lord's Prayer, or what I refer to as the Disciples' Prayer. This is the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples how to pray and what to pray. That's not where we're going today. For those of you that were here last week, know that we are in a series of the Psalms. And God has given us 150 Psalms, and in part, he has given us so many of them because life is complicated. Life is, can I get an amen on that? Is life complicated? Life is complicated. It is confusing. And we need to pray different things in different seasons of life. This is one of the reasons we have 150 psalms. And so one of the things I'm praying for myself and for our church family is that we will find our way around the psalms better so that they become familiar. Just like in my, in my little prayer book here, there's certain prayers. Over the years, I've been praying this for, using this tool for so long, I know sometimes, oh, I need to pray that prayer. On Sunday mornings, there's certain prayers I know that I need to pray. It's, it is even more important, I want to suggest, if you have a tool like this, that we have that kind of familiarity with the Psalms, God's inspired word, that in part are there to teach us how to pray. Now, we looked at this last week, those of you that were here, but I want to repeat some content from last week about the importance of the Psalms from a man named Van Gemeren. He writes this, he says, the book of Psalms can revolutionize our devotional life, our family patterns, and the fellowship and the witness of the church of Jesus Christ. This is a huge statement that he's making, and I believe it totally. That's why I'm putting it up here uh, again. He goes on. He says, the book of Psalms is unique. In it, God not only speaks to his people, he also encourages us to use the language of the Psalms in our individual prayers and praise. By applying these ancient Psalms to a new situation, the life of faith, hope, and love of the individual Christian, the Christian family, and the church may be greatly enhanced. The Psalms encourage a dialogical relationship, a dialogue between God and his children. Though no Old Testament book has been more important in the history of the church than the book of Psalms, we are in danger of losing it, partly because of lack of use of the Psalms themselves and partly because of lack of use of the skills required for understanding them. So a big part of what I want to do in these few weeks as we look at these psalms is to familiarize ourselves with these psalms so that we can learn to turn to them and to pray them and make them our own expressions of prayer when we don't have the words to pray ourselves. So if you weren't here last week, we learned that Psalm 3, for example, is a good psalm to pray in the morning, that Psalm 4 is a good psalm to pray in the evening. And both of those psalms came out of David's heart when his son Absalom had betrayed him and not only betrayed him, but put a target on his own father and went after his own father. He was alone and betrayed. So if you are feeling alone and betrayed and people that you love have turned against you, Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 are good places to go and to pray and to linger. But today we're looking at Psalm 12. And the problem in Psalm 12 is not betrayal. It's not David's son Absalom that has betrayed him that brings rise to David's prayer, another psalm of David, Psalm 12. It's not David's own sin that brings him 
to his knees in Psalm 12. We might turn to Psalm 51 if you're grieving over your own sin and your own, uh, your own failure and your own rebellion toward God. Psalm 51 is a place to go for that. That's what David is doing there in Psalm 51, regretting so much these things that I have done, but praying and begging that God would create in me a clean heart and restore the joy of my salvation. Psalm 51 is a place to go for that. That's not what's going on in Psalm 12. What's going on in Psalm 12 is David looks around and he just sees people who have abandoned God. He looks around and in the culture, we don't have really specific details, whether he's talking about the community of faith, whether he's talking about Israel, whether he's talking about the covenant people of God, or whether he's talking more broadly, it doesn't really matter. The psalm applies to both. He looks around and he sees immorality. And he sees people who have turned away from the Lord. And of course, there is a temptation to join them. If you can't beat them, join them. The attitude, what, uh, Psalm 12 is a psalm to go to when we need to resist this, if I can't beat them, join them kind of mentality and temptation that we would face. God wants us not to join in with the immorality of the world and the abandonment of pursuing the covenant-keeping God of Israel, Yahweh, our Lord and Savior, Jesus. So Psalm 12 is a place to go when we look around and we see everything around us as a mess. When we look at our culture today, we see that many people are telling lies readily in order to advance themselves. That's what we're going to see in a moment when we look at Psalm 12. I have no delight in calling out any people, but just to bring some things to our minds here. Uh, January 2nd, 2018, Washington Post has this you know, fact checker and these things, uh, investigating things. January 2nd, 2018, there was an article, President Trump has made 1,950 false or misleading statements over 347 days in office. The Supreme Court of the United States has arrogantly redefined marriage. The Supreme Court has arrogantly, what has been a consensus among civilizations for thousands of years, for millennia, that marriage is between a husband and a, a, husband and a wife, a man and a woman. The Supreme Court has, has defied what the Scripture says and what human societies, civilized societies for, for thousands of years have said. Uh, President Obama previously supported policies that, that uh, did not protect the most vulnerable people in our country, those who are not protected by the Constitution, in President Obama's view, those who are still uh, in the womb and do not have any rights to life or liberty or the pursuit of happiness. So Psalm 12 as we are about to get into it here, a long introduction this morning, Psalm 12 is a psalm to look at, whether we're looking at the national spectrum or whether we're looking in our neighborhoods and we see people that have abandoned God, Psalm 12 is a place to turn. We could describe Psalm 12 as with the title, Hopeful Thoughts in Bad Times. Hopeful Thoughts in Bad Times. Let's look at that psalm now. Hopefully your Bibles are still open to it. If they're not, you can grab a Bible in the chairs in front of you. And open there to Psalm 12. The title here doesn't tell us much about the background. It says, for the director of music, according to Sheminith, a psalm of David. 
And just a little uh, hint for you, when you come across a word, whether it's in the Old Testament or New Testament, like shimoneth, that's, uh, that means the translators have no idea how to translate this word. That's basically what that means. So what do we do? We don't know really what this word means, so let's just transliterate it. Let's just bring it out of Hebrew or out of Greek. In this case, Hebrew. Let's bring it out of there and just put it in. We don't know what this means. So I'd like to tell you I know what it means, but I have no idea what it means. So according to Shimoneth, it may be a musical term. That's what some hypothesize. This is a psalm of David. So not a lot of specific detail about this psalm or background compared to Psalm 3 and Psalm 4, which we looked at last week. So one of the reasons, I think, for this, a lack of detail of background, is this psalm then becomes more applicable in a variety of situations as we take the word of God that has been given to us, but now in a dialogical way, we pray it and make it our own back to him. So let's look at the beginning, verses 1 and 2. Actually, before we even get into the psalm, let me make one other uh, introductory comment. Lots of introductory comments here. As I have my Bible open to Psalm 12, I can see in their entirety on these two pages, Psalm 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16. So I've already alluded to the fact that there's 150 of these things. For good reason, because of the complexity of life, we need different psalms for different seasons. But there's also difference in in lengths of psalms. And so I'm just pointing out here that Psalm 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 and 16 are really short psalms. We don't necessarily have to have this great, big, lengthy prayer. Sometimes we're just so exhausted or we, we lack energy we, we can simply pray a short prayer, and I, I just, I like that. Do you like that? Are you with me? So Psalm 12 is one of these short prayers. Uh, Spurgeon says this about this, about the shortness of prayers. He says, as small ships can sail into harbors, which larger vessels drawing more water cannot enter, so our brief cries and short petitions may trade with heaven when our soul is wind-bound. When the stream of grace seems at too low an ebb to float a more laborious supplication. So Psalm 12, the world is a mess. I don't have energy. I don't know really what to do. So I'm going to open the psalm and make it my own and pray. So now we're up to verses 1 and 2. Help, Lord, for the godly are no more. The faithful have vanished from among men. Everyone lies to his neighbor. Their flattering lips speak with deception. The psalm that becomes our prayer as we pray it begins with with this hyperbole. When, When David writes, the godly are no more, he's not saying literally he's the only godly person left on the planet. He's saying as I look around my neighborhood, as I look around the community, people who in the past would have been faithful and would have been following the Lord, they're not anymore. They're not. In general, the godly are not easy to find. And he is discouraged. The faithful have vanished from among men, from among among women, from among children. The faithful are no more. And then in verse 2, he gives some specificity to what this abandonment of of Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, this abandonment looks like. Everyone is lying. Their flattering lips speak with deception. The NIV translate this, translates this Hebrew phrase with deception. Literally, it says there, it wouldn't be a good way to translate it because we wouldn't know what it means, but literally it says there, 
Uh, Everyone lies to his neighbor. Their flattering lips speak with heart to heart, with two hearts, with duplicity. In other words, in certain contexts and in certain places, I speak very skillfully this way in order to promote myself and to promote others and perhaps to look godly. But in other situations, I speak this way and betray who I really am. And I'm really not for the Lord. And they are advancing and they are gaining power and authority. And David is feeling alone. Everyone has seemingly abandoned the Lord. Commenting on this heart-to-heart phrase, the commentators of the Net Bible, they write this. They say, these people have two different types of hearts. Their flattering words seem to express kind motives and intentions, but this outward display does not really reflect their true motives. Their real heart is filled with evil thoughts and destructive intentions. The heart that is seemingly displayed through their words is far different from the real heart that they keep disguised. So this is what he's seeing. He's seeing people who lack integrity, who lack authenticity. And he's just bringing this concern before the Lord and just, and just lamenting, bringing it before God, saying, this is what I'm seeing. Another uh, commentator, uh, one of the Puritans on this verse says, a man without a heart is a wonder, but a man with two hearts is a monster. David is seeing monsters around him. He's seeing people who are skillfully using rhetoric and their words to advance and to have power and authority. And God is being taken out of the culture and of the covenant people of God as well. I think both uh, ideas are present here in this passage. I want to also emphasize as we learn our way around the Psalms that we have to read the Psalms as Christians. We have to read the Psalms in light of the gospel, in light of Christ, in light of what the New Testament says. So as we lament about the immorality in the world, in our neighborhoods, and in our culture, and in our country. We have to do this as Christians living in 2017 and not as an Israelite living uh, in 1000 BC, for example. And so the New Testament informs us about how we perceive both people who are professing believers and people who are not professing believers those who are in the world. And we should have very different attitudes about those who profess faith in Christ and those who don't and what we expect of them and how we lament. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes this to the church at Corinth. He says, I've written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And he's referring to what I'll call zero Corinthians, a letter that's lost, a letter that God never intended to be a part of the canon of Scripture. He's referring to this previous letter before 1 Corinthians, and he's saying, yeah, when I wrote you there, I I didn't mean to say not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world, not at all meaning people who are outside the church, who don't profess faith in Christ, who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. In other words, the Corinthians misunderstood him, and they stopped associating with people of the world who are ungodly. And he's, he's correcting them and saying, no, that, that, that's not what I was saying. But now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, a sister, a believer in Christ but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slander, or a drunkard, or a swindler. With such a man, don't even eat. That's what he was referring to. So you can picture the Corinthians stopping eating with their pagan neighbors and so on. He's saying, no, that's not what I'm getting at. 
with such a man uh, do not even eat. The person who, who's part of your fellowship and says they're a believer, but they just keep on gossiping. They're not repenting of their gossip. They just love their gossip, and they're going to keep on gossiping, and they're going to keep doing that. that. With that kind of a person, you shouldn't even eat because they are bringing down the name of Christ, and they're not living out the gospel in repentance. That's who you shouldn't eat with. What business is, is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. So we have to bring a New Testament theology to the Psalms. And we distinguish between what God expects of those who are believers and those who are not believers. You tracking with me, church, so far? So people of the world acting worldly ought not to surprise the Christian, we ought not to be surprised that those who don't know Christ, those who are not empowered with the Holy Spirit, that they live immoral lives, that they are abandoning what we see as basic principles of God's word. That doesn't mean we still don't lament over what is going on, but we have different expectations for those outside the church. Drop down, if you will, to verse 8, and we'll jump around in this psalm a little bit, but verse 8 kind of fits with verse one and two, he, he returns at the end of this psalm and he says, The wicked freely strut about when what is vile is honored among men. So we have a tendency to think that, man, things are really bad in our generation. It's never been like this. And we know from the psalms that that is not the case that our particular contemporary situation appears peculiarly, peculiarly dangerous to us and particularly vile and particularly terrible because we're close to it, not because things have necessarily changed that much. This is the way David felt. The wicked freely strut about when what is vile is honored among men. This is happening in our world today, and it happened in David's world. What is ungodly, what is vile, what shouldn't be going on, is, is honored in the world. So if that's what's going on and that's what you're observing, Psalm 12 is a place to turn and to cry out. Psalm 12 is a place for uh, this man, Jack Phillips, to turn to. Anybody know right offhand? Anybody know the story here? I'll just uh, tell you um, who this guy is. This photo was taken just a few weeks ago on the steps of the United States Supreme Court. And he is the owner. He's a believer in Christ of a cake shop called Masterpiece Cake Shop in Colorado. He is, uh, I, I get the impression that this is a very high-end cake shop that he has. And going all the way back to the year 2012, he had a couple uh, men come into his cake shop, Charlie Craig and David Mullins, and they asked him to create him this beautiful cake for their wedding these two men. And he struggled with that. Uh, Jack Phillips did. He's a believer. And I think if we try to put ourselves in his shoes, uh, I'm not an artist, and I have never baked a cake in my life. I don't know if you want to give me an amen on that or not, but I mean, I just have never baked a cake. So it's like a struggle for me to put myself in his shoes. But for him, when he bakes a cake, it's like, it's like an expression, an artistic expression of who he is. It's like what God made him to do, to bake these beautiful cakes that he charges huge amounts of money for and people pay huge amounts of money for. And, and so these guys come to him in 2012 and they want him to bake a cake for 
their wedding. I'll just read to you a little bit of the article. Uh, There's been many articles written on this. This is uh, from the Washington Post as well. It says, The laws of Mr. Phillips' home state of Colorado prohibit public accommodations, such as bakeries, from discriminating on the basis of sexual orientation. The baker has no objection to selling a cake off the shelf for a same-sex wedding, but he argues that creating a custom cake would force him to celebrate that union. In his view, that's a violation of his First Amendment rights to speak as he chooses. And so this case, going all the way back to 2012, has worked its way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission. And I think, again, if we can put ourselves in his shoes, we can understand where he doesn't want to do this. He, he said, this is a quote, our conversation, talking about this conversation he had with these two men in 2012, our conversation was just about 20 seconds long. Sorry, guys, I don't make cakes for same-sex weddings. He has decided, this fellow believer of ours, to go through this whole process, and we're now awaiting what the Supreme Court is going to say. Whose rights were violated here? Was it those who wanted to go in and buy a cake? Or was it the, the biblical religious values of, of this cake maker? Now, I, I obviously have gotten myself political in the sense in bringing this all up. But the reason that I bring this all up, really, is to say Psalm 12 is a place for this brother in Christ who is a cake baker to run. And I want to suggest, as we see our culture and our land increasingly going in a direction that is apart from biblical values and apart from Scripture, I want to say that we don't need to be afraid. The world is not going to end if the Supreme Court sides with, with uh, these guys. How do I, I don't know how to use this thing. If the Supreme Court sides with these guys... We do not need to be afraid. Church, is there an authority that is higher than the Supreme Court? That is the authority that we trust in and that we look to. The Supreme Court does not have the final authority on things. So, again, putting myself in his shoes, I can see where if, if my identity was so wrapped up in who I am in creating this artistic expression of this cake that I don't want to do it for something that is contrary to God's word and to God's heart. But I want to suggest that if this case goes in the direction of, of these guys, that we would have in the future, as our culture seems to be continually going in the direction of verse 8, the, f- the wicked freely strut about, when what is vile is honored among men. I want to suggest that we as a church need to not only be the kind of people who will stand on our consciences, and I get his conscience. He, he doesn't want to do what is, what is wrong, what is immoral. That's not right. It's not safe. And so I get that. But we, we need to be able to honor the Lord in our consciences and yet also love and display the gospel to people like this. We need to love them. So is it possible in the future that you and I, if we're business owners and so on, that we might be able to explain our conscience and our biblical values and simultaneously maybe have our our honor before the Lord and and bake our cake too? And, And to explain who we are in Christ and to actually plant seeds of the gospel and maybe make a cake praying for these guys. Now they might just refuse that, And that would be okay at that point. But if they accept it, 
perhaps we build a relationship in that cake that we made, even though they know that we're totally opposed, God is opposed to what is going on here, but we love you and we're going to make a cake. In fact, I'm going to make a cake for every one of your birthdays to remind you of the love of Christ and to pray that these guys would, like us, repent of our sins and believe in Christ. I think this is increasingly the world that we are going to live in. Psalm 12 is a place to go and pray and pray for God to work through us and to give us his strength and his peace and his grace as we live in a world that looks like it is going astray. So this is all verses 1 and 2. I've got to pick things up here. We're going to be here a long time uh, today. Can I get an amen on that? All right. So let's, I'm going to move quickly through the remaining verses. We've just looked at verses 1 and 2 and 8 where David is basically lamenting the condition of the world around him in his neighborhood and, and in the community of faith and outside the community of faith. Let's move on to verses 3 and 4. He says, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and every boastful tongue that says, We will triumph with our tongues. We own our lips. Who is our master? In verses 3 and 4, David has recognized the idolatry of the people of his day. And one of the idols of their day is their own lying speech. And it has become so successful and they have become powerful and they have become the leaders of the land. Some hypothesize that these are Gentile leaders who are, who are uh, ruling over Israel at this time. We don't know that for sure. I think it's intentionally ambiguous. But David is praying that this would end and we should pray when we see immorality rampant around us, when we see lying around us, we should pray that it will end. But he has identified this idolatry, and he is, he is recognizing that the God functionally that they have is actually their lips and their speech and their lying, and they are saying, who is our master? That's not literally what they're saying, but by the way that they are living, they are saying, who is our master? Our master is us, and we're getting what we want, power, authority, and wealth through manipulation, through lying, through our rhetoric. This is what we see in verses 3 and 4, flattering speech and powerful rhetoric, lying rhetoric are dangerous idols. David has identified that, and he's pouring it out before the Lord. And we, too, in our own situation, whether it's in our neighborhood and in our culture at large, should be pouring out before the Lord what we see going on. So that's verses 3 and 4. Let's move on to verse 5. Because of the oppression of the weak and the groaning of the needy, I will now arise, says the Lord. So we see that those who are lying and deceiving and those who are living vile lives, they are the ones with power and authority. And so the weak, the oppressed, are the ones who are praying Psalm 12. The the minority, if you will. Because of the oppression of the weak and the groaning of the needy, because of these prayers, our God, our Lord, will now arise. I will protect them. Verse 5 says, from those who malign them. Our strength and our protection is not in the Supreme Court or getting the right people elected necessarily. Our strength and our protection is in the Lord. This is what we are praying when we don't know how to pray, when we pray Psalm 12, when we see the world going down the tubes all around us. Christ himself is our refuge, our protection. Again, we have to read Psalm 12 in light of the New Testament. The danger of reading it isolated from the New Testament is it sounds like, well, he's going to make everything great right now. He's going to solve all these problems right now. 
And that is not the case. We know that he's not going to solve all the problems right now unless Christ comes back today. In light of the New Testament, we know that it is going to be his return when this protection is realized fully. And that we, like our Lord, might be involved in suffering and trials and tribulations and, and, even, and even martyrdom. But he hears those who are oppressed and those who are weak crying out. Going way back in church history, a pastor named Chrysostom, John Chrysostom, he writes this, Fear ye, whosoever ye be, that do wrong the poor. You have power and wealth and the favor of the judges, but they have the strongest weapons of all. Sighings and groanings. They have Psalm 12, which fetch help from heaven for them. These weapons dig down houses, throw up foundations, and overthrow overthrow whole nations. The power of a righteous man or woman praying Psalm 12 is effective, and a whole nation can change. I don't want to be too pessimistic today. This is what he's saying. This is where power is. The power isn't in those who are manipulating and lying and have authority in the courtrooms and in the world of David or in our world today. Christ himself is our refuge, our protection. It may include suffering, the New Testament tells us. I could go to many places, but in 2 Timothy 3.12, it says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So as we pray Psalm 12, we have to know that suffering persecution for the sake of the gospel is something that might be coming our way. This is, it doesn't, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to, to, to see this, to, to get this. Our Lord suffered tremendously. Out of the 12, out of his small group, if you will, the apostles, uh, one of them betrayed him. One of them lived long and died as an old man, John. The other 10, what happened to them? martyrdom. So God is with us, Emmanuel is with us, but it it could include martyrdom, the way that he will be with us. So as we pray Psalm 12, we're praying for the return of Christ, and ultimately when justice is going to be completely brought about is going to be at that time. Christ himself is our refuge, our protection. It might even include martyrdom or suffering. It has in many centuries. I'm not saying I see martyrdom around the corner in America, but I don't know what is going to come. We have seen this throughout church history in other segments. That's why I am bringing it up, not because I think things are going to get so bad necessarily. I'm praying that our country is going to turn, that the church is going to become strong, that the gospel is going to become known, that our high school campuses and our secular workplaces are going to see transformation because of Christians living out the gospel in those places instead of what we tend to see, and we tend to see what David saw, and so that's why Psalm 12 is a place for us to go. We tend to see immorality all around us. Finally, uh, today, we've covered uh, most of these verses. Let's see. I skipped verse 7. Let's look at verse 7 briefly because that ties in with verse 5. It says, O Lord, you will keep us safe and protect us from such people forever. Again, Christ, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, is our place of refuge. And then we'll finish up today looking at verse 6, which says, And the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver refined in a furnace of clay, purified seven times. I so appreciated what Don said. We didn't coordinate this. I like you like to think that we did, but what he said about the purity and the authority and the importance of God's word in our lives. This is what Psalm 12, uh, verse 6 is saying. 
the psalmist is contrasting the words of Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, with the words of the leaders in society as David is praying Psalm 12. And the words of the Lord are flawless. The psalm book that is most important is the psalm book in Scripture that is inspired. That's why there's 150 of them. This psalm is flawless. It's like silver refined in a furnace of clay, purified seven times. The commentators of the NIV Zondervan Study Bible write this. They say, these images from metalworking speak of the process of removing all imperfections from precious metals, from this verse. God's words do not need to go through that process, but they are like the finished product, flawless, priceless. The Psalms are flawless and priceless. They are the prayer book of the church And may God help us to be familiar with it and to turn to them and to pray these psalms, to open our Bibles as we are praying. The Word of God contrasts with the deceptive speech of the world. That's what verse 6 is saying. There's this contrast between the leaders who have turned away from the Lord and the actual Word of God. Notice what the psalm doesn't say. The psalm doesn't say, look at the faithful Israelites. Or to contemporize it or contextualize it for today, the psalm doesn't say, look at the faithful Christians. The psalm points us to the only thing that we can kind of touch or hear from that is flawless. It is the word of God. Our our, our churches, we we are broken places. We make the news for our immorality. There are certain things associated in our culture with pastors and with priests that are unspeakable, that are vile. We don't do well to point people to the church apart from pointing them to Christ, our Savior, and to the flawlessness of His Word. The church is a collection of sinners. We are like a hospital, and God's grace has renewed us and restored us, and we should be welcoming others regularly in our midst, but they have a very different perspective of us. We need to be pointing people to the purity and the authority and the flawlessness of his word. We'll close this morning with a quote from another Puritan. He uh, writes this. Uh, His name's Joseph Hall. He says, the scripture is the sun. The church is the clock. The sun we know to be sure and regularly constant in its motions. The clock, as it may fall out, may go too fast or too slow. We should condemn him of folly that should profess to trust the clock rather than the sun. So we cannot but justly tax the credulity of those who would rather trust the church than Scripture. Psalm 12 is pointing us to the flawless word of God. And the church, we should be on our knees and thankful for his grace and not pointing to ourselves as much other than as Christ is in us and by his grace he is displayed in us. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this prayer book, the Psalms. With my friend, uh, Professor Van Gemeren, We acknowledge that we do not know our way. Many of us here today do not know our way around these 150 psalms as we should. Lord, I pray that this year, 2018, would be a year that we would begin not knowing all 150 of them, but knowing many of them. 
and finding, yes, this is the place where I need to open the, the psalm book to, the prayer book to, and pray and pour out my heart, whether it's a long psalm or whether it's a short psalm, whether it's a psalm of rejoicing or whether it's a psalm of lament, whether it's a psalm of confidence, expression of confidence, or whether it's a psalm of an expression of regret. Lord, help us to continually be transformed and conformed into your image. And I'm praying especially that you would help to conform and change us through the praying of the psalms. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.